You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. Well, on today's episode, I'm very excited to be allowed into this state of Queensland and also to see someone that is one of my favourite architects, but more importantly, has served on a jury, has been multiple high commendation achiever, as well as winner for a lot of our awards. Welcome, Stuart Folks. Thank you. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. It's been, we were just talking a little bit about quite the journey that we've had. It's probably reflecting how old we're both getting <laughs> or how long we've known each other. But just on that, would you mind just sharing with us a little bit about your childhood and growing up? It's, a, it's always a good place to start from the beginning. I, I grew up in Brisbane. I was born here. Mum and dad had bought a, a kind of late 60s project home, which in, in a town like Brisbane means a hardwood built, weatherboard clad, okay. uh, elevated house. We couldn't call it a Queenslander because it didn't really fit the genre of that type of building, but, okay. but built in the kind of Queensland way out of timber. And I was just telling the guys in the studio about this house that my first kind of relationship with brick was through this house, even though it was timber built and clad in weatherboard, it did actually have that classic smooth face orange brick the extruded brick from the 60s but because of the kind of you know the budget that mum and dad had they could only use brickwork for a feature wall facing the street and and garden walls so you know I kind of spent my childhood jumping these brick garden walls on my BMX and you know getting around in the garden but you know that was our our kind of first relationship with with that material but really it was in a, in a wooden house that we had that experience. That's amazing. When did you know or get the calling for architecture? When did you decide? I don't think it was a kind of, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of architects kind of talk about the, the kind of light bulb moment when they were kind of in art classes at school or mm. in the sand pit and they kind of talk about the building, Lego and this kind of thing. But for me, I think, I, I don't think there was one defining moment, but I, I was quite consciously aware when visiting friends, you know, around the neighbourhood that there were differences between their house and and our house, I think because our our family home was a, a kind of classic project home, it was pretty straightforward. There were, there were no kind of tricks to the, to the house. And yet I had friends that lived in a kind of neighbouring suburb where a lot of the houses had been architect designed and designed to suit the kind of sloping woodland kind of setting of places like Chapel Hill and Kenmore. And, uh, and you know, these houses were built out of face brickwork, lots of exposed timber roof beams, raking ceilings, sunken lounges, galley kitchens, you know, and these were, these were kind of elements that I, we didn't have in our own house. And there were things that I found really fascinating that you could you know, enter a house and look through this open stairwell down to the split level lounge room, or we didn't have a galley kitchen with a servery. I thought that was quite fascinating and, you know, quite an amazing element in a house. Um, did you know architects back then? Because, you know, I know when I grew up, I, I mean, architecture was just such a, was one of those professions that was almost a little bit like aspirational and aloof and you kind of had to move in circles to even know architects. Did you have any exposure to that? Oh, there was, yeah, there was no exposure. My dad does talk about, he, he ran a business near where we lived. He was a car audio technician and, you know, he had lots of clients that were driving European cars and having car audio systems being retrofitted into their cars so he actually it turns out got to 
got to meet and know quite a lot of architects that, that lived locally. But really, in our kind of social life growing up, we didn't encounter architects. I think there was a kid at school whose dad was an architect, maybe. But, you know, I think it, was, it wasn't really a kind of social presence that we had mm. of architecture. There was certainly no lineage of architects in the Vokes family. Um, <laughs> and there's no sort of architecture royalty in my heritage. But I, I think it was really just the privilege of growing up in the the baby boomer suburbs, you know, outer suburbs of Brisbane, where there was growing affluence and I guess, you know, a greater number of people, families that could afford the services of architecture, of okay. architects. And I think that just meant that we were going to encounter buildings that were atypical, I think. So when you decided to study it, what was the main driving force in that decision or was there no driving force? Well, there was, and it was really my parents that kind of forced me into that direction in some way, kind of indirectly. I Really, I kind of always reflected that my only talent growing up was was drawing, was fine art. It was something that I was really passionate about, and I spent my uh, weekends inside my bedroom drawing and and ex- exploring all different types of medium and and papers and materials, etc. Whilst other kids were out like getting sunburned and <laughs> kicking football around, I was drawing like a, a complete nerd. But it was something that I was kind of had a, a natural kind of talent with. And I, I remember doing work experience in grade 10 in the illustration department at Mac Trucks in Queensland okay. and had this most fascinating kind of drawing studio of about half a dozen to a dozen illustrators who were amazing at drawing. And these, these guys would go down into the factory and find parts of the Mac truck and then take them back up to the drawing room and make illustrations that provided those who were building the trucks with assembly instructions on how to put the gearbox together or how to, you know, every single part of the truck would be hand-drawn and the exploded assembly drawings were the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. Anyway, I found myself there because I was uh, training in gymnastics of of all things and my gym um, instructor was one of the illustrators and I had the most amazing week at Mack Trucks and I was really inspired by this guy, you know, young guy in his 20s and I just thought he had the most amazing life, a really great gymnast phenomenal at drawing and and so I came home you know after after this week in the illustration department at Mac Trucks and I announced to mum and dad that I discovered the most amazing thing that you can leave school at the end of grade 10 and go to art college oh wow and I was like that this is what I'm going to be doing were they thrilled and within minutes that dream was kind of squashed <laughs> and, and of course like you know a couple of Baby boomer parents have just spent all of their savings on sending their kids through private schools and whatever. Of course, that that idea wasn't going to hold up. And of course, our future was always going to be finished high school. Yeah. And then let's see what happens. And of course, there was this natural push to kind of push kids from high school into university. That mm. was that was seen as the only way to secure a kind of really positive future for your child. That's right. And I think maybe naively, maybe it was maybe it was the right decision. I mean, I think things have worked out really. Great, actually, and I really, I don't think I could be anything other than an than an architect. But, but I thought maybe naively, I thought, oh well, you know, what's the where do you go if you've got an interest in drawing yep. in fine art, and your parents won't let you go to art school? It seemed like the the kind of next obvious choice was to move into architecture, which I don't think is necessarily at all a kind of logical step to move from drawing to architecture. I think it's there's so you know it's it's a vastly different kind of daily practice and I don't think architects are necessarily great artists and I don't think artists can necessarily think like architects yes. but to look at that 
what is what was really great about it is that I find myself as a grown adult and still sitting, spending my time with coloured pencils, drawing and scribbling and, you know, just like I did when I was 13. When you started at university and obviously not having sort of really just a preconception that you were hoping to be drawing trucks maybe by doing architecture? Well, yeah, well, I, I guess so. I don't think I was. I don't think I was fascinated by drawing trucks. I think I was just fascinated by these immaculate drawings and this amazing ability to to represent reality through this beautiful reduction of line work. Yeah, um, but I mean, is that that sort of what you went into? Uh, well, uh, choosing architecture, thinking that you would be doing. Ah, uh, that I would just not? be drawing. Do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I'm um, asking. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I think the two sort of things came together. This sort of interest in drawing and and thinking that architecture might be about drawing because one communicates through making drawings of course but but I think there was always that instinct and observation that was being made about the different spatial difference between places and I think I as at a young age started to form preferences and opinions about like spatial quality without without even maybe being conscious of it yes you know all the time but I I think it I think it kind of it, having that consciousness, I think, really shapes your personality, definitely shapes your preferences around, you know, how you might just arrange your bedroom or where you like to go to dinner. You know, it's not about food. It's actually about the quality of the dining space and the restaurant or, you know, all, all of those kinds of mm-hmm. things, you know, it re- really became all-encompassing, you know, to a point where it frustrates my wife that I would choose the, you know, the five options that we could um, take between where we are at any given time and, and the drive home I'll always choose the the drive that's more scenic or more beautiful even if it takes another 15 minutes to get get home it's like there's always been this kind of awareness and interest in the kind of spatial quality and the beauty of, of places I think and then how did when you were at university what impact did that have on your outlook around that well, we, the interesting thing about my university experience was that it wasn't a classic scholarship, a university scholarship. I never at any point felt like I was a, a real student because we, I entered the part-time course at QUT in Brisbane, yep. which um, entailed working full-time four days a week and going to university one day a week from 9 in the morning until 9 p.m. at night. You know, at 9 p.m. at night in QUT in 1989 was pretty, it was a pretty foul place to be you know it's not like there were cafes open no it's a sort of energetic kind of life in the city i mean the city basically closed down at about 5 36 p.m at night so here we were at the reach of the of the city in this university campus and the only school that was open was the school of architecture and the only students that were there were part-time students so you know, dinner on that night consisted of whatever was left in the food vending machine oh, nice. um, that you would eat on the way back to the train station, <laughs> you know, to get home. But, um, you know, I never really felt like I had a proper student life. I never really felt like a scholar. But it meant that all of that learning was was happening uh, via the kind of internship in the practice. And there was an expectation that we had some kind of commercial output pretty pretty early on. You yeah. know, we, there was no nowhere to hide or work in small practices that built things and that that formed my scholarship really and for a lot I think for a lot of students who studied that way going to university was more like a kind of an inconvenience and a distraction a means from, to an end yeah, yeah from yeah. from the their, their kind of real interest in daily practice which was being involved in making buildings that I think that really was 
formative for myself and it continues to be the kind of reason we get out of bed and come to this studio every day is it is it, it has always been and will be I think about making buildings that's well, been our focus during that time like when you were studying but also working in those practices what were some of the how impactful was that for what how you chose to design yeah it was, it was really interesting you know Brisbane at the time had probably very few kind of design focused practices really it was a town where things just had to be done and buildings had to be made you know I don't think there was really only one university that had the reputation of creating designers I didn't go to that university I went to the university that created practitioners that was their, their sort of strong reputation and you know I think being exposed to just the kind of daily work meant that we're out with I think I always was conscious that I wanted to strike a balance in my education and skill set that was about being an all-rounder, that I wanted to be recognised as a competent practitioner, you know, pragmatic and develop a really sound, very good knowledge of how to build buildings and develop the rhetoric that you needed around the meeting table to sound competent. Mm -hmm. You know, that was pretty important. But at the same time, I realised that I just I also had an interest in those less tangible qualities of of buildings and, and spaces and it wasn't always the workplace that was going to kind of enrich you and enrich that part of your your interest i mm. think so and and university also didn't necessarily necessarily satisfy that in me yeah. either you yeah know, given the, the kind of quality of the, the teaching or the, or the focus of the teaching at that university at the time so i, I think you know that was always self-guided that aspect of my my scholarship but but definitely, I think learning, studying architecture in the part-time course and working meant, you know, there was there was a really sound training in how to be a practitioner, mm. how to be pragmatic, yep. you know, when you needed to be. I think that what we needed to learn slowly was just the, the way in which we could be poetic about the work and not be laughed out of the boardroom. You know, I remember a client telling me, well, I, I guess we were raised in this period where one was taught not to talk about aesthetics and things like that in architecture. You know, I think slowly I kind of developed confidence to be able to say, push back on that, yeah. that sort of idea. And with a knowing that really there was no one else in the, in the building industry, no other discipline that was interested in aesthetics or quality or those kind of less tangible things about space. And that that was actually the remit of the architect amongst, you know, all those other things and knowing about building contracts or, knowing about how buildings get put together, mm. how you lay a brick, yep. blah, blah, blah. But really it was our, it was our role in the, in the meeting room, in the boardroom, to actually uh, promote those other intangible things about, or less tangible things about architecture. You went out pretty early in your own practice. What prompted that? Yeah, it, well, look, it wasn't, I always felt like I was a late starter with entering practice, I think. But I, I guess I was doing work on the side for private clients from when I was a student. And that was the other thing that working at a really young age in a practice did for us is it gave us the confidence to be present with clients from the beginning of their project to the end. And so the first kind of projects I did out of ours were for parents and friends of mine at school. And it started with a carport and then a deck off the back of a house and that led to it an even bigger extension and it led to, you know, designing two new houses as a, as a new graduate and one of them was built. And that that was really quite a phenomenal and kind of unique experience really. I, I just took it for granted because it was something that I was doing personally. So I, at the time I just thought, well, this, this is what you do as yeah. a young student and a young graduate. But 
But that, you know, as the years went on, I realised that that wasn't really Not the experience that most that. people had. Yeah. So at the age of 23, I had been commissioned to design a new holiday house up near Mullaney for, for a Brisbane family. And it was a phenomenal experience. I remember visiting the, the construction site on a Friday night. I'd drive up after work, get some cheap takeaway and um, sleep the night at the construction site. You know, once the roof was on, um, you know, just take a sleeping bag and sleep in this building. It was pretty romantic and kind of felt like a kind of, you know, life goal, a cliche for a, for a young graduate to be doing that. You know, I, I remember having a wee off the, off the elevated floor into the bush and this, you know, this rural kind of site. So there was no, no one around. And it, you know, it was really quite an amazing experience, yeah. you know, and I put so much of my life into that one house as you do as a young graduate. And it felt like that was, you know, that was, you know, my first building in a way, even though I had been making all this other work. So even though my first real practice didn't really happen until I was, well, it was 2003 mm. when the first partnership began, I had been, you know, working with clients for a long time. And, and that became our definition for what being an architect would mean. It, being an architect wasn't about designing buildings. Being an architect meant you had a client. Yes. You know, you had a commission. And that was always really important to us, I think, that you, we understood and we, we delivered on the commission, you know, what was presented to us. Mm. And I think that's really hard, particularly as a, as a young architect, to accept the commission. Mm. Often you'll see the results of architects who accept commissions but then wish they were something else and attempt to turn those projects into things that they're not meant to be. Mm whether that's through trying to spend more money or direct the project in the wrong in the wrong way. And it's such a I mean, what I've learned just being in this industry, it's just the process is such a long process, you know, from where you start to where yeah. you finish and yeah. what happens in between sometimes doesn't look like it was meant to from the start. Yeah, that's yeah. it. I, I mean I think it's almost a I think it's advice for life really to be patient. I, I think to be an architect you need to be particularly a young architect. A graduate, you need to be really patient. And Aaron and I have been collaborating since 2003, mm. so that's, what, 19 years. It's a long time to be working together. And we met when Aaron was still a third-year student. And for many years, I would always, my best advice to Aaron was to be patient because he was this overachiever, <laughs> phenomenal scholar. You know, he, he had the kind of scholarship that I never had. He, he was a real student, a real scholar at, at university. He also studied part-time and when I met him he, he wasn't working and his job was his uni work yeah and I'm like what man what? doing the part-time course and you're not <laughs> working and and then I you know I, I realized pretty quickly that he was one of the only students I'd ever met who, who studied like it was his job yeah you know I'm not sure how he funded his life but I think there was a lot of two-minute noodles but you know he, so he was an overachiever and always you know he had aspirations to be somewhere and he was always comparing himself to those who were a lot older, a lot more advanced than what he was at that time. And I think that just always showed, revealed where his ambitions lay. But I was always saying to Aaron, just, you know, you're, whatever you're doing right now, you're heading in the right direction and you will be wherever you want to be, just mm. be patient. So after 19 years, is that... How does that dynamic still work? Oh, I think I think we've settled into a kind of really patient relationship, and the dynamic is is amazing. And I, mm. I think we're really fortunate that um, we often get asked that question. You know, how does the creative relationship work? Mm. What is it that makes makes that work? And 
but so many of those relationships don't last. Mm. It's like social, any sort of social relationship. And I think it's, it's like any relationship, there's got to be tolerance and patience. But I, but in terms of, you know, the creative partnership or how, how do you continue to kind of breathe life, energy into, into the creative partnership? We kind of came to this realization that maybe what might make the difference between practices is not the presence of a good designer, but because there are so many good designers, you know, a great number of good designers that come out of the university every year. Mm. There's great designers in every practice all through Brisbane, but that doesn't really kind of, it doesn't translate always into great buildings. No. So we, we came to the realisation that maybe it can't simply be the presence of good designers in a practice or in a, in a creative partnership that makes a difference. It's got something to do with the presence of a caring critic and the quality of that critic that you have. And for, for many who are sole practitioners, it means a really difficult life in practice because they need to find proxy critics either yeah. within their staff group or, you know, you know, those outside of their practice. But with Aaron and I have always worked in a way that we offer each other a critique of one's of each other's work. And I will always acknowledge that the work is always the work that I might drive directly is always better because of that critique that I I receive from Aaron. Like yes. the, the project is always something more, you know, in moments where I start to kind of lose traction, he'll remind me to kind of, you know, elevate my ambition or try to achieve something more out of the building. And I think that's pretty that's what a caring mm-hmm. critic does for you. Yeah. You know, they and a caring you know, how do you define what caring means or a caring critic? You know, it's someone who deeply understands you and your values mm. and under, understands how you might make decisions. And so they're, they're there with a kind of a caring hand to remind you of what those, um, what it is that you, you know, how, how it is that you make a decision or what it is that you're striving for. Not just give you this sort of very impatient critic, critique mm. of your work and say, don't make the roof like that, make it like this, or forget the client, or don't worry about the budget, or that's a sort of very careless careless critic to have around you like, like it might like sound it. really powerful in the moment but no. it can lead you to trouble i love that uh, term caring critic mm. we were just looking at a magazine that's actually 2008 i think it was that that magazine was produced yeah that's how long yeah. you've been sort of designing with bricks which is pretty radical for brisbane really and particularly back then yeah why bricks for you yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think definitely we were, you know, beginning to kind of make buildings as young architects in a period where the local architecture scene was really focused on lightweight construction and the heroics of hardwood construction, how you put big lumps of timber together <laughs> and the poetics of fine timber work, you know, battens and things that would filter light and so there's a lot of great romance about that. And bricks were something that were dis- had been seen, I think, culturally as something distasteful in, in Queensland for a long time and, and in Brisbane. And I think we often thought that that was really just the, the kind of results of there being very, very poorly kind of evolved culture around brickwork in, in a town like Brisbane that was predominantly timber built. Bricks were things that you might find in a little cottage or a Queenslander in the fireplace and the chimney of the fireplace only. And that was it. And then slowly over time, the families that owned those buildings that needed to run maintenance on them might replace a, a timber stump with a brick stump or decided they needed a pathway out to the incinerator and build the incinerator out of bricks and, yeah. and a pathway out of leftover bricks that were taken from the building site of the brick house next door or, you know, 
So interestingly, we, in, in the early days, you know, from 2003, we found ourselves spending a lot of time in the backyards in, in a suburbia, taking photographs of projects that we'd, you know, received commissions to work on. And we kind of stood back and realised that what we were documenting was not always just simply the building, but we were doc- documenting the setting mm-hmm. and that the setting was often peppered with pieces of DIY brickwork, you know, these little things that weren't the original component of the building. There were these bits of construction that were built by the DIY weekend mm. builder, always out of brick because they were in the garden. So, you know, bricks became great improvised retaining walls and pathways and structures and stairs up to the Queenslander. You know, if, you're, mm. if your cottage was only a metre above the ground and the timber stairs had rotted, then you mean the easiest way to build it. You know, a new set of stairs was in brick they were going to last forever mm-hmm. so we found ourselves documenting these things and being fascinated by what we saw as being these suburban cultural artifacts almost like a suburban archaeology <laughs> in in kind of cheaply made off-form concrete or brickwork yeah. and we even ran a, a project we we entered a competition for a cultural for a sort of sculptural work with an artist a local artist and conceptually, the idea was that we uh, took a building that we had actually already measured and had surveyed. So we'd drawn the existing building and all of these little fragments are in the garden. And we imagined what would be left if this building was to be burnt down or ravaged by termites or flood or something like that, which often happens in Queensland yes. um, with timber buildings. And we then documented all of the remaining kind of these artifacts so they you know in a way we were kind of building this idea that these were actually significant cultural artifacts okay only 100 years old maybe 200 years old but nonetheless cultural artifacts that offered a really interesting insight into occupancy of these pieces of of territory all kind of post-colonial of course occupancy and that became our project the idea of this tableau of these these sort of elements you know so we kind of were just developing almost a fetish for the material of brick and what it could do through all of these really wonderful little experiments that we were finding that people had made in, in the backyards of, of Brizzy houses and that that building that is reviewed in the magazine that you talk about that was probably one of the first buildings wasn't the first building that we had designed and built in brick but it was certainly the first time where someone had noticed that we were using brick mm. and Linda Ginger from Brick at the time called me and just what was sort of interested and wanted to talk about bricks. And I remember the first conversation I had with that client, I visited them, we had accepted the commission and their narrow house was constructed in timber framing, but the two side walls of this narrow house were built in brickwork. Mm. And they said to me, oh, look, I don't know really what we should do here with the brick. I'm sure your advice will be to render it. Okay. And that was a real kind of turning point because I realised, yeah, that there's a real kind of issue here for bricks in this town. Yeah, there's a real <laughs> stigma attached to bricks that the first thing everyone wants to do is render them. And there really wasn't, I mean, I, you know, I guess it wasn't our fault. There really wasn't a lot of great examples of brickwork in a town like Brisbane. It wasn't a brick culture. But we, through our scholarship and our interest in all these little bits of brick everywhere that we were finding and developing a fetish over, we'd obviously gone off and discovered all this wonderful brickwork by Mies van der Rohe that was not really the kind of work of Mies van der Rohe that was um, really popularised and published and obviously the great work of Louis Kahn and 
and all that wonderful, intricate, you know, improvisation that was happening with the arts and crafts movement mm. in England, mm. the most phenomenal brickwork. So, you know, we were really kind of hyped about it. And I said, oh, I said to these clients, I don't know, the, the problem here isn't the brickwork. The problem is the salmon-coloured roof tiles and the peach-coloured paint on the timber. Yeah, right. And the <laughs> resulting composition of your poor brick, which is actually quite beautiful if you have a look at it in isolation. It's really gorgeous, you know. And, you know, we've all been talking about bricks now for 15, 20 years, so we know what, why they're, what's beautiful about them. But these clients came away from that meet with a completely changed relationship to brickwork. And okay. we then proceeded to build this enormous new face brick wall in their garden. It was great. And, I mean, you've sort of had that influence now with so many houses. Has the conversation been a similar conversation over that time with the clients around using brickwork or has that changed also? Oh, absolutely, it's changed, yeah. I mean, I, I mean you guys know the, the presence that brick has now in the industry, massive resurgence in a, in a state like Queensland. It's no longer simply the material that one uses to kind of display symbols of status or wealth. It's back with other materials as a kind of classic material. And I think I was talking to the guys in the studio earlier. I said, I, I just don't, at, at one point, sure, maybe 15, 20 years ago, it was an issue of surrounding fashion and style in architecture. I just don't think that's going to be the case from here with brickwork. I think it's, I think brickwork is, ha, has been repositioned as one of the classic materials and it will just sit along other materials, you know, enduringly now and the question will really simply be about the way in which it's composed you know in a, in a building project whether yeah. it's the hero material or whether it's the background material yeah. or whether it's the supporting uh, material in the composition that's really then the kind of act of design you know the way in which it might be emphasized in the project do you see that as the main? I mean, you've been involved in all aspects. You've nearly entered nearly every year, and if you haven't entered, I think I've yeah. asked you to be yeah. in my jury several times. But what is that? How you see the change over the years with uh, brick? Yeah, I think so. And I don't think there's any. We don't have to do any hard sell with clients anymore. Most of the time, clients come to us and say, "Oh, we you know, really love the work that you're you're doing here with this material." And often it's about comments about brickwork. And so there's no hard sell that we have to do like so many years ago in, um, in Indrapilly with that client. There's no shock that we might build in face brickwork. It's, there's an expectation, you know, that we're going to build in brick. Well, I think you, you obviously have done some pretty phenomenal projects in brick from the get-go. You. Yeah. But you also, I think, have really paired it well with other materials. And I do, I think brick does offer that, like it does pair well with other materials. You know, and there's, there's, you've used the word poetic, but there's a really beautiful style to how you can do that. And I think you've really done that oh, very, very well. That's what I notice about yeah. your designs. Thank you. So, thank you for everything that you've done for the industry. And you're always so generous with your time for me and, you. and the industry. So, thank you for we that. We love to talk about the words. <laughs> <laughs> we will go to these rapid fire questions now. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Uh, online news. Handwriting or typing? Handwriting. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen? A coloured pencil. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Read books. What's important to you, style or substance? Style. Substance. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's really hard, that one. And my friends hate me for it, but I, I always say 
every decision in life is really what sits behind that is beauty. And everyone gets offended because, like, everyone wants to have some opinion about, oh, you can't, <laughs> no one can pass judgment on beauty because, you know, it's subjective. And I'm like, no, no, forget that argument. It's okay. just, it's about pleasure and beauty. Coffee or tea? Coffee, uh, tea, but I drink too much coffee. Yeah. TV shows or movies? Oh, TV shows recently. TV series. Antique or brand new? Antique. Call or text? Call. Travel back in time or into the future? Back in time. Exterior or interior? Mm, interior. Video games or board games? Board games. Form or function? Form. Complex or simple with relation to design? Ah, uh, yeah, simple. Stuart Vokes, thank you very, very much again for everything yeah. that you've done. Great question. For also just your beautiful work that you've done here for Brick Thanks and Design. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having us. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think Brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.